This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. From Master Dogen's Body and Mind Study of the Way. For the time being, let us say there are two approaches to studying the Buddha way, to study with mind and to study with body. To study the way with the body means to study the way with your own body. It is a study of the way using this lump of red flesh. The body comes forth from the study of the way. Everything that comes forth from the study of the way is the true human body. The entire world of the Ten Directions is nothing but the true human body. The coming and going of birth and death is the true human body. <clears throat> when I was preparing this talk, I didn't know uh, that Roshi was going to speak about um, roughly this, this section of the fascicle, and I too was drawn, perhaps serendipitously, to, to work with this, with this um, study of the way through the body, with the body. And I have always loved that phrase of Dogen's, for the time being. For the time being, stand on top of the highest peak. For the time being, proceed along the bottom of the deepest ocean. For the time being, three heads and eight arms. For the time being, an eight or 16 foot body. For the time being, a staff or whisk. For the time being, a pillar or a lantern. For the time being, the earth and sky. And this is from Uji, being time, or some translations have it as time being, another one of, of Dogen's fascicles. For the time being, study the way with the body, study the way with the mind. For the time being, realize the way as the true human body. Realize that apart from the body, the way cannot be realized. And in Uji, Dogen says that for the time being means that time itself is being, and all being is time, that each moment is all being. Each moment is the entire world. And he says, reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. And I think a lot about time and how I move through it with my own body and mind. Because for most of my life, I have rushed through that very life out of a sense that I was running out of time. And I've really had this feeling ever since I can remember, this feeling that there were simply not enough hours in the day to do everything that I needed and, and wanted to do. And in, in one sense, this feeling has helped me. I mean, it has helped me to be conscious of how I fill the moments of my day. The 6,400,099,980 moments that Dogen says are in a single day. <laughs> I'm not sure how he came up with that number. <laughs> and so this sense of urgency has helped me to... Um, to the best of my ability to not waste time. But 
I also see that it doesn't come from the understanding that each moment is all being, that no being and no world is left out of the present moment. It doesn't come from the understanding that I am a time being, a being made of time, that time is my nature, just as space and consciousness and the four great elements are my nature. Instead, that urgency has really come out of fear, out of a a deep fear of missing out, of not doing enough, not accomplishing enough. And it's it's strange to say, but it's almost as if I've been afraid that I would be uh, left out of my own life, which is impossible, isn't it? And yet... For the time being means time itself is being, which tells me that it is when I stand apart from time that I feel it flying by. Standing apart, I stand apart from my own body, my mind, my own being. I've been reading the meditations of Marcus Aurelius And he says, no person loses any other life than this which they now live, nor live any other than this which they now lose. One cannot lose either the past or the future. For what a person has not, how can anyone take from them? The present is the only thing of which we can be deprived, if it is true that this is the only thing we have. And the only way we can deprive ourselves of the present, I don't think actually anybody else can do that for us, is by not being in it, by standing apart, by shutting down, by dying a little bit or a lot, if not in in our body, in our mind. And so does a time being experience the hours and the days and the years as rushing past as trickling down. I told the story before, I think I told it at the temple, of a woman by the name of Diane Van Deren. And she's um, an athlete, a mother. And when she was 18, she was um, diagnosed with epilepsy. And what she found is that in the beginning, when she just would, would start to feel an aura coming, she could outrun it, quite literally. She, would, she had her shoes by the door, and she would just put on her running shoes and start running. And the, the fit, the seizure, would not come. And so that worked for a little while. And then she, her body must have gotten used to it, because it, she found she had to keep running longer and longer distances. So she would go out for two hours, then three hours, then four, until a point came where she could no longer outrun the seizures. And it got so bad that she uh, taught her young children, I think they were about uh, eight or nine, she taught them how to drive in case they were ever out and she had a seizure and they had to drive her to the hospital. And so um, she went to the hospital and they induced a grand mal seizure and they found the area in her brain that was, that was causing them. And so she had surgery and the seizures stopped. But a significant 
side effect was she lost her sense of direction. And she had continued to run through all of this, and by this point she was running uh, ultra marathons. And uh, she said that in the races, everyone learned at a certain point not to follow her. Because she, <laughs> she would get lost. <laughs> she would start running, and she would just follow a trail for you know, a couple of hours in the wrong direction. And she would realize it. She would just turn around and run back. It didn't bother her. And the reason it didn't bother her is she also lost her sense of time. And so she didn't know how long she was running. So she didn't feel it. I mean, she felt pain like we do, but it didn't hurt her in the same way. So she was running for four hours. She was running for eight hours. It actually made no difference to her. She just she didn't think about it. She just runs. And I've been saying this for years you know, to runners, myself included, just run, just run. She can actually do that <laughs> effortlessly. <laughs> And when someone uh, heard this story, uh, they asked me, you know, I wonder, I wonder what motion is like for her. And I said, it's probably not unlike stillness, not unlike rest. And in the article I read about her, she had just run 430 miles in the Yukon Territory in minus 40 degree <laughs> temperatures. Uh, 10 straight days she was running, she was sleeping about an hour a night. So clearly, I mean, there is something other happening in that body that she can do that. But she, she was speaking, and I, I listened to a podcast later, she was speaking about what happens when she gets into a kind of a rhythm, a kind of running samadhi. And she says there is really just her breath and the, in time with her steps. And she says there's nothing else. There's no thoughts, there's no worry, there's no anticipation. There is just her breath. There is just movement. And of course, it's not that her daily life is easy. It isn't by any means. But while she's running, she is free. She is free of time. She is free in time. To study the way with a body means to study the way with your own body. It is to study the way, is the study of the way using this lump of red flesh. And it made me think of that, uh, the commentary to uh, Sandra on her soul, that koan. A woman says, if you are enlightened to the truth of things, you will know that we pass from one husk to another like a traveler at an inn. If you are not yet clear, do not rush about blindly. When suddenly earth, air, fire, and water are decomposed, you will be like a crab fallen into boiling water, struggling with its seven arms and eight legs. Do not say then that I have not warned you. That's quite an image. If you are not yet clear at the moment of your death when the four great elements separate, fall away, you will be like a crab struggling in boiling water. A student just said to me recently, I have practiced for years for just a moment like this. She's been taking care of her husband who had a stroke and is really almost completely incapacitated. And she said, all of my years of practice are exactly for this. 
are so that I'll understand that I have this human body on loan and only temporarily. This flesh and blood that I can make use of for the duration of my lifespan, which I don't know how long it will be. And yet I can use this human body and isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible? I was not born with wings or scales or a hundred legs. Although that would be pretty incredible, <laughs> actually. But would I know it? And I'm not a wall or a pillar or a swing set that although they perfectly manifest their nature, they don't know that they're doing so as far as we can tell. Miraculously, I have one heart and a brain with just the right size and the wiring to have self-awareness, which means that I know that I am, which means I have the ability to ask who I am. And that is both my suffering and my liberation. So a tiger may not question his tiger nature. And it seems that without us, tigers and boulders and orchids would do perfectly fine. They would arise and they would pass away according to their time and place. And yet, for better or for worse, here we are, human beings, with the ability to ask, what is my purpose? And I believe I have been offered, I have been loaned this human body for the exact reason of realizing what that body is, what that mind is. For letting this body come forth from the study of the way. For realizing it and manifesting it as the true human body. And, you know, that phrase appears, or that, that word appears often, you know, the true human body, the true person. And we could ask, well, as opposed to the fake one, you know, the false one. But there is something that it's underlying. What does it mean to be a true person? What does it mean to manifest the true human body? The Buddha said that one of the main reasons we suffer is because of our ignorance, of course, of who we are, what the self is. And, you know, as, as Roshi said uh, on Wednesday, so, and, and Dogen says it also in the fascicle, so this human body is made up of the four great elements and the five skandhas, according to Buddhism. And we perceive ordinary experience, we perceive everything really from the perspective of these five skandhas, the aggregates of form, sensation, conception, discrimination, and awareness. Together, they in fact constitute what we call existence. And so by themselves, they're not a problem because we would not be and we could not experience without them. But the Buddha said, the fact that we cling to them the fact that we identify and appropriate them is what creates their suffering. Seeing them as me and seeing experience as mine, what he called the I-making, me-making, mind-making process. 
which is at the root of our clinging. And so he said, it's, it's, and it's not only just that I see the skandhas as me, which is conceit, it's also that I form views out of them. I am better than, I am less than. This is better than, this is less than. And that is why clinging is so strong. I am angry, or you made me angry. I am right, you are wrong. In the moment that we establish a view, everything that we experience following it gets filtered through that same view, and so it just gets strengthened. And you know, when we're, when we're really kind of stuck in the process, um, one, it can just happen too fast for us to really notice what is happening. But two, we tend to um, look for the evidence that will support our view. And everything else, in a sense, becomes inadmissible in court. We no longer see it. And each of these aggregates includes everything that is past, present, and future, so all of time. It includes everything that is internal, everything that is external, what is gross or subtle, ordinary or sublime, far or near. In other words, there is nothing that we can experience that is outside of these five skandhas. And so form, rupa, is matter and it is made up of the, the elements, and it's everything that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. Sensation, vedana, is the, the raw and immediate experience when we, uh, when we experience an object. So my, my hand comes into contact with this stick, and at the point of contact, before I even know what it is, there is a sensation that I experience as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And a, a, a student just gave me a purple sequined stuffed hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful what you say in talks because it has a way of coming back to you. And the sequins flip from side to side. So when you, when you touch them one way, they're purple. And when you touch them the other way, they're aquamarine. And she said these uh, kinds of stuffed animals are called flippies. And kids are going crazy uh, over them because they are very uh, pleasant and very soothing to the touch, which I can vouch for. You know, she pulled it out at the dining room table and everyone <laughs> wanted to touch it. She even said, you know, we should have a few for the residents when they get stressed out. You know, they can just <laughs> touch their hedgehogs. <laughs> So uh, sensation is just that raw moment of contact that says pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then conception, samja, is the uh, sensory and mental process that registers, that recognizes and labels the object. This is a stick, that is a purple hedgehog. Discrimination, samskara, is also mental formations or karmic activities. And it is the, um, the imprints and associations that will be triggered by my contact with the object, as well as the process that makes me act in one way or another in relationship to it. So recognizing this as my cuts, 
my mind immediately calls forth images, perhaps of my teacher, sticks that I have touched in the past, feelings, memories, etc., stories. And of course, this is all happening instantaneously, too fast for us to register. So if instead of, of this stick, I touched a snake, I would recoil without even thinking about it. If I touch fire, same thing. I'm not thinking, I will now move my hand. I just move my hand. And yet, there is will, there is volition, you could say, underneath that act. And Joseph Goldstein speaks about, I think he said he was doing walking meditation and standing and trying to see the moment in which his body and mind would will himself to take a step and how difficult it is to catch that. So, you know, these skandhas are really, they're, they're, they're acting immediately together. So that's uh, discrimination. I was just remembering, I, I played discrimination <laughs> in a, for a Buddhist birthday play. Uh, there were five of us, and uh, we were the five skandhas. <laughs> and I was, I was discrimination. And my job was to stand to the side with sunglasses and just look down on the other poor, <laughs> the other four devils. I don't remember the rest of the play, actually. <laughs> I just remember that part. Um, and awareness, consciousness, vijnana, is my knowledge of the existence of this object, is the awareness of the one who is aware of the object, as well as the continuity of that awareness. And it's also the base that supports all of existence. And you know, we know that there's um, Buddhism um, categorizes eight, but for, this, for our purposes here, six kinds of consciousnesses that correspond to the six senses. So it includes mind consciousness. And so in a moment of contact, even if the contact is mental, awareness makes sense of that contact and gives me the information that I need to respond. And the fact is that even despite you know, all that has been written about consciousness in Buddhism, when it comes to our, our scientific understanding of it, we really don't yet understand what is going on or how. There was a, a woman who, I think it was also a, a, a podcast, um, somebody sent me with alien hand syndrome. And what it is, is that some, she had an accident and she had to have surgery and something happened. And her, I think it was her left hand, quite literally took a life of its own, a personality of its own. So she was a smoker and the hand, every time she would pull a cigarette, the hand would take it and crush it and throw it away. She said it was extremely annoying. <laughs> she tried to reason with her hand. It just, it wasn't having it. And it reminded me of, uh, of octopuses, because they think that octopuses don't have a central consciousness, that the, the arms uh, each have their own kind of uh, intelligence, awareness. And so they've seen that some octopuses, if you put food that they don't recognize, some arms will go towards it, maybe three of the arms, and the other five will hide. 
which, you know, in one sense it makes sense. If it's something that's going to attack you, at least you have five other arms. <laughs> but what they have found is that different animals will favor certain arms over others in, in, in similar uh, situations. We'll explore with the same three arms, let's say, and hide the other five, as if some of the arms are bold and the others are shy or cautious. And so, you know, we have, even what we understand as consciousness is our, uh, our experience of human consciousness. We know very little about certainly how animals experience um, anything, experience reality. How do they process through their body and mind? And I was reading this, this article I don't know if it's going to be in the mountain record or, or part of it. Uh, this, um, I believe he's a naturalist, David Abram. He, he wrote The Spell of the Sensuous. And this, this one is called uh, Being Animal. And he's describing his encounter with a colony of sea lions off of the coast of, of Alaska. And he's in a kayak. And he suddenly... Uh, turns around a band, he, he hears them first, and then he turns, so he sees there's about 80 sea lions uh, just on, a, on an outcropping of, of rock. And he says some of them are, can, can grow as large as 11 feet and be 2,500 pounds. And, my, and there's 80 of them. And so he's, he's seeing them. They see him, and they start growling in a not friendly way. And he's in his little kayak. And so what he does, because he's done this before with, with other animals, is he starts, at first he starts to sing. He says, just a sustained note. And he says, when you, when you do it right, and it's just a clear note, you're immediately transmitting your state, right? It, what is your level of relaxation? And then he very quickly realizes that with all their growling, there's no way they're going to hear him. So he starts growling as, as loud as he can. And they stop. They quiet down, and they're just looking at him. They're checking him out. But his growling calls a humpback whale. <laughs> so she comes out and doesn't quite capsize his boat. It's very interesting. It's almost just like she's saying, I'm warning you, because she, she jumps and flips twice, very near his boat, but doesn't touch him. And so he realizes, okay, I've been, I've been warned. So he's trying to get out of there. And all of a sudden he turns and he realizes the sea lions are starting to come at him. Now this is almost 200,000 pounds accumulated of flesh coming at him. And so he does the first thing that he can think of doing. He starts dancing. And what he does is he lets go of the, the paddle, and he just starts swaying. He just lifts his arms, and he starts going you know, from side to side. And lo and behold, the sea lions, not only do they stop, they start swaying with him. <laughs> 80, 80, cub, 80 bulls, because since some of them are, are the large male, you know, they start swaying with him. And so he's swaying, he's thinking, OK, this is good. You know, he's, he's safe. For the time being, for the time being, <laughs> and um, he's thinking, okay, so now I have to get out of here. 
So he lowers his arms, and immediately they start lunging again. So he lifts them up again and starts swaying. And then he realizes, I'm stuck here. Now what do I do? So he's sitting there in his kayak. At a certain point, he can barely feel his arms anymore. And so he very, very slowly just lowers one and keeps the other one going. And with his paddle, you know, starts slowly maneuvering the, the kayak around. And he keeps his eyes just locked on the sea lions. And they're, they have not um, deviated. I mean, they're locked on him as, just, as they continue you know, to, to sway. And then he just starts paddling and starts rounding the band until he gets out of, out of sight. He says it was like, like a chorus line. <laughs> and so how do we know? <clears throat> of course, this is an animal, but how do we know how another perceives? You know, Dogen says that in the, in the Mountains and Rivers Sutra. Like how, in a sense, how do I know that what you see as water is what I see as water? You know, when I hold this stick up, are, are there 90? sticks, 90 views. As he says, is it, is it that it's the same stick, or is it that there's 80 different ways of looking at it, or 90 different ways of looking at it? Given that, isn't it a wonder that we don't misunderstand each other more? Because the 84,000 dharma-expounding skandhas are turning the dharma wheel, the moment the dharma wheel is turned, the true human body covers the whole universe and extends throughout all of time. It is not that the true human body is unlimited. The true human body is just the true human body. At this moment, it is you. At this moment, it is I. That is the true human body, the entire world of the 10 directions. Study the way without missing these points. But if the human body covers the whole universe and it extends throughout all of time, then why is it not unlimited? Why does he say that? And why does he say that it is you, that it is I? I thought the body was not me. So is it me or is it not me? He says, at this moment, it is you. At this moment, it is I. That is the true human body, the entire world of the 10 directions. In a moment of tiredness, in a moment of I have nothing left, moments that we experience, certainly during session, certainly in our lives, at just such a moment, it is I, the true human body, which is not unlimited. It is just the true human body with its aches and pains, its fatigue, its hunger, its restlessness. And at just such a moment, it also covers the whole universe and extends throughout all of time. It is the entire world of the 10 directions, which means it is not limited by those same aches and pains and the hunger and the restlessness. And I think, I think that it is in fact in those moments when we're really, when we are facing our limits, in those moments when we are 
brought short by our pain, our inability to stay awake, to let go of another thought. In those moments when we really are facing a wall, I think it's in those moments that if we can just stay where we are and not turn away, that that's where the possibility is to um, cross over into another realm of time being. Because something happens. Something happens when we finally surrender that body and that mind to the flow of time. When we can no longer uh, hold on to that which keeps us in control and therefore separate. When we no longer have anything left to fight with, we don't. We stop. Finally, we stop creating. And then the 16-foot golden body reveals itself. Pema Chodron um, calls this, this staying, uh, staying in your sweet spot, which is you know, easy enough to do when you're feeling good and secure, full of energy. It's something else to remain soft when all you want to do is harden. So it sounds you know, cute, almost. You know, stay in your sweet spot until you try it. Until you try doing and then you realize, oh, this is advanced practice. This is the heroic stance of a bodhisattva. For the time being, sit on the seat of enlightenment. For the time being, proceed without a shadow of a doubt. For the time being, two legs, two hands, two eyes to see everything. For the time being, a five or six foot perfect human body. For the time being, a drill or a kitchen knife. For the time being, a pearl in your robe's sleeve. For the time being, the whole earth, the whole sky, and you. And you. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.